Welcome to the Company and Markets podcast. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. Joining me today is our news editor, Bradley Gerrard. How are you doing, Bradley? Yeah, very good, thank you. It's been a busy week, though results season is dying down a bit now. That's true, yeah, it's been very busy. Lots of results in the mag this week. Exactly right. Also joining us is our deputy company's editor, Mark Robinson. Mark, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Ian. And uh, you've written about half the uh, magazine this week, Mark. It's It's been a productive week, but uh, hopefully uh, quality will uh, outlast quantity in this case. And over in the control room, we have our digital editor, Graham Davis. Graham, how are you doing? I'm very well, Ian. Thanks nice for joining back. us. It's been thanks. a while. Yes, thanks for coming back. Okay, well, let's start off uh, with uh, Brussels. I don't know where else to start, really. It's been a, another sombre week uh, for uh, anyone in Europe, and it's been reflected on the markets too. Bradley, you have uh, written about some of the travel stocks that have been affected by the latest attacks. Yeah, I mean, obviously the market um, as a whole kind of fell a bit yesterday morning and in the initial wake of the attacks. And travel stocks, obviously, potentially most sort of... Um, going to be most affected by this event because it will inevitably have an impact on the, the desire of people to travel and actually looking at how far the stocks fell there were more than or more of them fell a sort of a greater amount than after the Paris attacks actually. And you actually identified in the news piece that you wrote a couple of the airlines that had viewed Belgium as a growth opportunity uh, for their kind of coverage so yeah tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ryanair and TUI, kind of in their most recent results, um, did mention Brussels, uh, not as the only country, but as a country in which they were looking to grow their presence. And they saw it as an important country to be present in, um, not only for you know people from the UK flying there, but also the, the Belgian tourist industry itself. So, you know, serving Belgians who want to go on holiday via you know other locations in Europe or Africa or wherever it might be. And also actually Peter Fankhauser, who's the chief executive of uh, Thomas Cook, um, they issued a trading statement yesterday morning and um, he was actually saying in that statement that um, he's sort of visibly seeing people delaying their decision to book a summer holiday and his company's uh, summer bookings are only at uh, 40, 40% at the moment, which is below the same time last year. So it's likely or it's, there's a potential um, that this latest attack might put that decision of some people whether to go on holiday off completely or might delay it so much further. And this isn't the first we've heard of that, right? This seems to be an ongoing theme and a, a totally understandable theme that people are reticent to travel given the events. Exactly. I mean, after Paris, there were a few trading updates and results from airlines. And um, one of the things that um, the EasyJet chief executive actually said was that, you know, travel is relatively robust and it does bounce back. But obviously this attack coming just, you know, just a few months after Paris is not going to be very welcome. Well, we've, we've had a succession, really, when you think about it as well. There's a Tunisia and then Samal Sheikh. As, you know, it, the list goes on. I guess after a while, it, it cements people's fears. Well, exactly. And I mean, a lot of the airlines kind of after things like you say, like Sham, and um, there was a bomb in Turkey in October as well. The, the airlines kind of were able to react a little bit to that and sort of move uh, capacity to serve uh, the greater demand for things like Spain and the islands of Spain. But with a sort of attack on sort of you know, central European soil, maybe Spain might be a little less attractive itself now, even given its proximity. Um, so yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it, it will very likely have an impact on the travel stocks you'd have thought. Then you've also got the issue of, um, you know, sort of for the travel stocks, the issue of 
um, the weakness of Sterling as well was the Brexit debate kind of creeps up on mm. us. No, exactly right, and we'll be returning to that, I'm sure. Uh, our editor, John Human also uh, talked about Brussels in his editorial this week and, and mentioned the price of gold, which has jumped, and uh, the gold miners, obviously, also with the uh, the impact of operational leverage, uh, the share prices have also jumped this year. So, yeah, we've seen reverberations very much in the markets. OK, well, where, what else have we got in, in seven days? Sports Direct, there's been quite a lot going on there. Yeah, once again, it's a um, very well-known uh, founder, Mike Ashley, gave an interview to The Times and um, his comments were widely reported in other media outlets. I mean, effectively, you could argue he wasn't really saying anything we didn't already know. I mean, the company had issued a trading update in January and had said that it would expect profits to be lower than initially guided. But the comments um, coming just this week, you know, he, he basically said the company can't be as profitable as it was last year and that sent the shares down further again yesterday. So, we had the company on a buy for a while and we moved to a hold. There was a succession of negative headlines. Yeah, the there was. We moved to a hold, I think, around sort of like January kind of time, actually, just around the time of the profit warning. Christmas, they had a terrible Christmas, with the, mainly for bad PR. And yeah, since then, the shares have really not performed very well at all. Isn't this potentially a big governance concern as well, if you're giving what looks like a profit warning to a national newspaper in, in advance of the market? Uh, but what you're saying is p- perhaps we already knew a lot of the stuff he was saying, so that might be a bit unfair. Yeah, I mean, as we, we knew an element of it. They, they had warned in January already, so you could argue he was just really kind of repeating the message that was in that but they did put out a clarifying statement saying that following what he said and just to guide them that the profits will be at the bottom of the range that they had previously given yeah exactly so um there is that clarification that maybe to sort of prevent the the potential view like you just said that this was potentially a you know sort of a, a market moving comment but it, he was really i suppose just kind of highlighting what the company had said in january but obviously when it's said in an official statement um obviously it has an impact but it's arguably a bit worse when you've got the founder repeating it to a national newspaper with the comments then repeated again throughout the whole of the national media so and and even worse he uh he said that he wished he'd never bought newcastle united (laughs) and he wished he'd never got into football so really serious issues there well i think i mean the fans of newcastle united might have their own view on mike ashley as well but um you know sports director is a funny one i mean a lot of the sentiment around the shares has certainly waned sort of in the past few months because of sort of mainly PR really you know the the company's been fighting on all fronts to sort of bash off uh, negative stories about the pay working conditions that type of thing um but I guess now the problem is that it looks like there are sort of more fundamental problems with the business especially if the chief executive is very honestly which is a good thing I suppose management to be but very honestly saying really what the prognosis is for I mean they, they should have a bit of a fillip from the European Football Championships this year right but that's really one of the few upside hopes at the moment. yeah potentially and that, that that is potentially true but I think there are probably a few more types of businesses which could benefit ahead of something like a clothing retailer such as the gambling stocks maybe even the pub groups I mean people going out and watching the football I mean it's it's more likely that will happen than you'll go out and buy a tracksuit because England are playing. I mean, okay, if England get very far, then maybe you know I'll retract that statement and we'll be wearing England shirts again. Okay, we are all wearing. That. We are all wearing tracksuits actually on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't want to disclose that, but anyway, uh, yeah. And uh, so yeah, I think um, there could be a boost, I suppose, from the European Championships, but I think it's quite a, a sort of far out thing to expect. Let's talk about one of your companies, uh, Youngs. The chief executive will be stepping down. 
for nearly two decades. Yeah, exactly. Um, Stephen Goodyear has been uh, with the pub group. Or he's, been, he's been sort of involved in pub groups for a very long time. Uh, he worked for Courage before joining Youngs, and he's worked at Courage for the best part of two decades. And he's been at Youngs for um, a, a pretty long time as well. Um, he's going to be um, sort of moving on to the non-exec side of things. The shares, uh, they haven't really sort of reacted massively negatively. I think that's because obviously they're handing over the reins to their sort of head of retail, basically, who who, you know, Patrick Dardis, who's been of the group of Fair While. So there isn't sort of a massive shock. Um, Mr. Goodyear's 61 this year, so you might expect him to take a bit of a back seat. So it's a fairly predictable business model as well, Youngs, I think. Yeah, they're very, very London-focused, very rugby-focused. Yeah. A lot of their pubs are very geared into sort of getting that rugby crowd in, yeah. uh, which is arguably a little bit niche, I suppose. But as you say, they do it very well. And um, as a fan of rugby, Mark, I'm sure you're aware of a, a Youngs pub or two. Absolutely, absolutely. A little bit too often, I think. <laughs> okay, and it's always been a good company, you know. Absolutely. But, and we should just mention while the changes at the top, we have also covered um, Sir Andrew Whitty stepping down at GSK, but we've we've discussed that before, so perhaps we can move swiftly on and just mention RBS on the dividend. So, um, yeah, what's going on there? They've, they've paid some money back to the government. Yeah, basically, I mean, the, the simplest way to put it is, like you just said, they've effectively paid some money to the Treasury to enable them to be able to pay a dividend. So part of the um, sort of uh, rules of the uh, state-backed rescue of the bank prevented RBS from paying dividends out until it was deemed to be in a sufficiently healthy position. So now they've been able to pay this £1.2 billion to the Treasury, which will enable them uh, by kind of law, by rule of law, I suppose, to pay a dividend, although that's not expected to happen this year. It's it potentially could happen next year, the company says. But And at the results, one of the big di- disappointments uh, uh, was that they, I think they pushed back any return of capital to beyond, I think it was the first quarter of 2017 at least. Yeah. So yeah, th- th- they may be able to uh, do it on a kind of regulatory basis, but whether they're able to do it on a kind of capital basis is another matter. Exactly. It's yeah. a technicality. I mean, arguably, if you're, a, if you're a bull of RBS, then you'll see this as another step along the road, um, which can only be seen as positive. But um, like you say it's not as if uh, rbs is throwing off excess cash so the reality of actually paying a dividend um you know uh, we're still waiting to see i think we're going to treat the listeners by not mentioning the budget um because it's most, post, mostly uh, <laughs> political machinations uh, rather than anything that really affects companies and the fallout from george Osborne's budget but graham you've written mm. about uh, tungsten uh, this week an yeah. interesting bit going on behind the scenes there or very much actually on stage in terms of eddie trull the founder um who has been looking to kind of get more control over the business that he founded tell us what's going yeah, on there. It's, it's an intriguing situation uh, eddie trull who's uh, was is known in the city for his time at duke street capital he's been around the city for a long time and tungsten's been quite a headline grabber since it floated at 225p a, a couple of years back nearly three years ago now it does invoice uh, electronic invoicing and 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 uh, has had some um, pretty impressive claims to have the capacity to process billions and billions of invoices and and and, and it those claims made it very popular with investors to begin with um and sent the shares up from 225p to nearly four pound but that addressable market didn't seem to materialize so quickly didn't quite materialize and they, they branched out they, they they looked at launching a sort of banking operation and then there was a a bit of controversy around around the shares there was a short selling episode which hammered the shares the shares were as low as 30p last year now now mr Truel, um uh, actually uh, shifted from chief exec to a, a non-exec role i believe um late last year 
and also put a fair amount of his own money yeah, into trying to shore mean, up the shares. Exactly, you know, backers it, within the city. We've regularly written about his director's dealings. He's been buying shares. He owns about seventeen percent of the company now. But it, it transpires that over the, over the past few months, um, he has made representations to the board in terms of some sort of corporate deal. The last of which happened last Saturday. Um, uh, when he suggested that he could take some of the assets of Tungsten and fold them into some other businesses that he's got interest in, one of which is a telematics business called Tantalum. Um, the board rejected this uh, with a rather damning uh, description of the offer being universally without merit for shareholders. <laughs> Not, w- w- with no merit anywhere no. in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, and Mr. Trill um, resigned from the board. Um, so it's it's a funny one. You get the impression that with the stake that he's got, he's not going to go away quietly from this one. Uh, there are suggestions that it, you know it maybe from without the board, um, he could uh, maybe make a hostile move. Who knows? But the, the issue here for shells is he wasn't actually offering to buy the buy the company out and buy the shares. He wanted to take some of the assets, fold them into another one of his businesses, which would then leave Tungsten being. An investment company, basically, with an interest in this wider business. So it's a, it's a slightly convoluted situation. Which you've done a very good job of explaining. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, no, you have. I mean, it's something we'll continue to follow because yeah. it's not going to be the end of that one. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's definitely worth um, keeping an eye on because you get the sense there's going to be more action there. Okay, and uh, just finally, we have a, one of our longer news analysis pieces this week, Mark, that you've written about China. You've said, forget, forget Brexit, the headline goes, China is the real concern. And you've seen uh, signs in the property market that are reminiscent of the US uh, bubble prior to 2008. Well, that, that was my conclusion as well. That was one of uh, the chief uh, political economic advisors in China. And uh, he's drawn sort of parallels between what's happening now in uh, in China with of the subprime crisis in the US. And, and it's linked to the fact uh, that the expansion of the shadow banking system, uh, an increasing number of uh, Chinese uh, home buyers are actually accessing peer-to-peer lending and uh, and the other different types of organisations that have sprung up since the, the market was uh, uh, liberalised or opened up to a, a certain extent. Now, what that what, what it's transferred into is that we, we now have uh, home buyers in China that are, are going in with uh, no deposit, no visible means of support, income, savings. Why does that sound familiar? It does sound terribly familiar. Perhaps the one thing that counts against this is the paucity of Chinese economic statistics. We don't really, or we can't get a reliable handle on just how many mortgagees are out there now. We're just going on reports that we've seen. But it's the nature of the lending as much as anything else that's going to... Uh, raise some eyebrows uh, and plus I, I made the point about Brexit earlier in the, the article because obviously that does lead into some instability in the markets but I think it's been uh, overcooked you know you've had um, the CBI coming out against it and also um, people like Mark Carney but actually I, I think China is is the real looming problem uh, some of the the um, some of those anxieties were taken away in the early part of uh, this year or from January onwards, really, when we saw a, a bit of a, a rebound in commodity markets that's uh, accelerated during the second quarter. But really, this is um, fundamentally um, a result of uh, uh, the Chinese uh, state bank uh, laying off US dollar denominated assets. And this has the effect of um, uh, un- undervalued 
undermining the value of the greenback. And, of course, there's that uh, negative correlation with the commodity prices that the, the US dollar um, exhibits. So that's the reason – that's the main reason why we've seen uh, an uptick in commodity markets with the possible exception of oil. But even that feeds into the oil price bounce too. Which is a perfect link to our feature this week um, that you've had a big hand in, which is about oil survivors. So we've talked a lot on this podcast and we've written a fair amount about all the trials of the of the oil market. Um, but what you've tried to do in this feature is identify those companies that will make it through the current turbulence. What kind of metrics have you used or what kind of um, factors have you looked at in terms of companies you think might be resilient? Well, um, it, it relates, a lot of it actually relates to um, uh, balance sheet uh, stability. Um, the fact that uh, all of these companies that we have mentioned, with the exception of the oil service uh, providers there, uh, have existing production and also have some uh, production in the offing. Uh, Alex Newman and myself have gone through and, and just well, we've we've taken a we've taken we've taken a, 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 a less scientific approach, if you like. We, we're just looking at balance sheet stability, really, uh, and the and the ability of these companies to generate uh, returns in a, a low price uh, climate. Because we, even though the oil price has come back over the last couple of weeks, we we don't see um, markets beginning to move towards equilibrium until the third quarter of this year at the earliest and they're not going to achieve equilibrium at that point but they'll start moving that way so uh, companies that have uh, existing production a low cost base balance sheet uh, that isn't uh, overly leveraged there were some of the main reasons uh, that that we picked out a few of these companies and alex has uh, run the rule over um, companies like uh, the two majors uh, bp and royal dutch shell as well but also uh, also what was quite interesting here in terms of protecting that dividend you and alex judge that potentially one of the companies least likely to uh, cut its dividend is not based in the uk it's a u.s company Exxon Mobil. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the point is, Exxon is. It, it, it's. I think it is uh, the largest um, public oil company in the world now, uh, and the, and the main point about that is they've got a very strong balance sheet, and, and one of the reasons we looked at that is because they're, they're in a, a prime position to hoover up uh, distressed assets now that uh, uh, now that a lot of hedges have come off from uh, uh, production. Uh, in in the North Sea, uh, in the Middle East, and also small to medium sized companies that that actually are struggling under the weight of their balance sheets. Uh, it's going to be um, easy meat for a company like Exxon as well. It's and it's got, managed to maintain its profitability. It yeah. has, it has. I mean, it, it's it's I don't know. It's a full stage integrated player, really. Um, and we, we've always liked it in just in terms of its stability as well. But we've we've also picked a couple of unlikely uh, options in the. In the field of oilfield services, Amec Foster Wheeler, a company that uh, has got into trouble because of uh, the fall away in capital budgets in the oil industry, and they um, uh, cut their dividend rate last year. And the focus is, is uh, purely on uh, reducing their their leverage levels, uh, their level of leverage at the moment. Why are you, yeah, given that and cutting the dividend pay rate, why are you more confident when it comes to Amec Foster Wheeler? Uh, well, we, we think it's we think it's uh, because the the price has come off quite a bit, but we we, we like its long term prospects anyway because it, it just doesn't uh, serve uh, solely the oil and gas markets. It's also got considerable exposure to nuclear markets and other forms of engineering too. And with them, we just thought it was um, a case of uh, you know, bad timing. Uh, they, they'd incorporated the, the Wheeler, Foster Wheeler Group from the US, and then oil prices um, clicked firmly into reverse. 
Um, we also mentioned uh, Gulf uh, Marine Services, and uh, it's a company that we've always always liked because of the the business mix. I mean, they have uh, they have just come out these last few days and uh, delivered a profit warning for next year based on. Um, uh, a margin squeeze because the new business that they're attracting at the moment it's a it's a buyer's market out there and so uh, um, so their clients are coming back to them and said well we can we can afford this over the coming months I mean that shouldn't have been much of a surprise to the market in a sense but what we do like about them is their business mix which is based um, largely in uh, the Middle East and largely in relation to OPEX costs and largely to do with national oil companies where the uh, revenue streams are far more predictable, uh, albeit at a lower margin. Uh, Ferro Petroleum is another one we like as well, without going right through the list here. It's, it's, it's a smaller producer, uh, fantastic balance sheet at the moment. It's got production, it's got existing production, a low cost production at that. It's got an interesting um, exploration program for this year. And plus it's based in Norwegian waters as well. So it gets the uh, requisite tax benefits of being in that locale. If I can put you on the spot um one question that our readers or listeners might ask is of the two majors in the uk shell and bp which one would you uh, most credit as a, as a potential oil survivor or are you confident on both uh less so with bp i mean the, the operation is going to pack up tomorrow but uh there's a it, it still hasn't most of the Macondo uh, costs are behind it now, and most are included uh, on the balance sheet, and so we've got some clarity there. But I, I just tend to prefer um, uh, Shell's mix now that uh, uh, the BG um, merger or takeover has, has gone through because uh, it's, a, it's a good long-term strategic move, I think, because uh, LNG, LNG is likely to be more predictable and profitable end of the oil and gas market. Uh, in years to come, and they've uh, incorporated some of the the best assets around that BG have in the, the Bowen Basin uh, in Australia, and and plus uh, their offshore um, oil finds in the, the Santos region of uh, Brazil. Or you know, there, there, there was some uh, justified uh, worries over the, um, the the ability the ability of BG to get the requisite kit out to uh, their their offshore. Um, plays in the Santos Basin but uh, because of Shell's involvement we now think that's uh, less likely that they'll be affected by the uh, Petrobras scandal. And when it comes to BP you have written about the um, decline in the reserves replenishment ratio. Why is that an important ratio? Uh, well, it's, it's as it sounds. Well, exactly. I mean, they've uh, they've trimmed their capital uh, budgets, and and therefore, um, uh, you know, exploration has fallen, and they haven't been able to replenish the barrel barrels that they've sold uh, over the last year, and and that uh, and it's been it was the same case with Shell as well. I mean, and over time, if if that keeps up, they're not obviously your reserve reserve. But uh, base diminishes the value of the company goes down so it's a it's a standard metric it's there's it, not a problem at the moment because it, it, while this while this present uh, oil price uh, slump has dragged on since midway through 2014 it's it's not long enough to uh, to put a real dent in reserves but we'll be looking at, at that at the half year mark and also the full year mark for these companies as well because that can't allow be allowed to go on but the focus is on shoring up balance sheets and freeing up free cash flow in order that they might uh, finance their dividends. And that's what's happened. But this uh, this uh, capital uh, pullback can't uh, – it's unsustainable over the long run. 
thanks a lot, Mark. And I would uh, commend anyone to uh, read the full feature. It really does kind of cut through a lot of the noise around the oil market at the moment um, and has some actionable tips in there. And finally, Mark, I'm not going to let you alone because we thought we'd end, finish with something sweet, yes. uh, which is right at the end of the magazine. Uh, but uh, Right in time something. for Easter as well. Right on time for Easter. We have a sex focus on the confectionery market. Yeah, the, the confectionery market, but the spe- specific uh, focus on uh, chocolate and chocolatiers because uh, it was inspired by the uh, imminent uh, debut of uh, Hotel Chocolat. Uh, that's coming up. It's uh, attracted quite a bit of interest in the financial pages and uh, from what we hear, uh, a lot of interest from retail investors as Are well. Are you a fan personally? I am a fan personally. I don't have much of a sweet tooth, to be honest. But Bradley, I, Hotel Chocolat? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, happy with that. Graham? Big fan, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, what's your favourite? Is there a favourite type they of They do it? these big slabs of chocolate about that thing. A slab? Mm, you build nice. your house out of it. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> okay, but um, although we've had the London listing, this is very much a European sector. Yeah, uh, most of the, the, the big players out there um, uh, are based in Europe, in uh, the, the low countries, but also um, in Germany and France as well. Not all of them are listed, and some of the larger ones are people that you've never actually heard of. But uh, I, I saw, it's a thematic piece, really, and I was looking at uh, even a company like Fevitri Drinks as being similar uh, to Hotel Chocolat because what it does reflect is the changing sort of palettes, the increased sophistication, if you like, of uh, palettes in the U- in the UK, and it's opened up opportunities. I mean, if you would have asked someone to pay, I don't even know what, it, what a, a bottle of Fevitri tonic is, but I know it's far more expensive than the the, the standard brand. Without mentioning it's a couple of quid. that's like asking a politician how much is a pint of milk. How much is how much is the gin and tonic? You probably have a better bit (laughs) of a chance, isn't it? And and, and the point is, it it feeds into this uh, long-term theme that um, uh, investors like Jim Rogers have been beating the drum about for years uh, about foodstuffs, and over the long term, this is going to provide real returns for investors. And I, I tend to agree. But I also think that uh, you've got to look at the value-added end of the market as well. And some of the interesting uh, points about chocolate itself, it's, it's not dissimilar to tobacco uh, gambling or, uh, or liquor because it's got uh, defensive qualities. Uh, and when you look at um, uh, it's, it, because it's expanded and it's a global industry now, uh, the, the chocolate demand tends to be um, inelastic. So uh, what that means is re- regardless of uh, if you get fallaways or, or price increases, people will, will still buy chocolate. It's a bit like coffee in that regard. Uh, but by the same token, what, studies have shown that once you get a general increase in in incomes in a, a given economy, especially Western economies, I think I quote somewhere that if if you were to get a, a 10% increase in the United States uh, in median incomes, then uh, chocolate consumption or cocoa cons- consumption goes up by nearly the same rate, 9.3%. So it, it suggests that it, 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 it wins out on both ends. It's defensive, but it also moves in line with incomes. And when we see the growth of incomes, particularly in Asian markets, that's where all the, the growth is coming from in, in uh, the chocolate industry. So I, I've, I've mentioned a few uh, different plays on this, but it's, it's just an interesting one, I think, for people's portfolios uh, to be uh, treated in much the same way as uh, as the sin stocks. And very uh, prescient as well with the sugar level coming in. And actually, next week's Sex Focus, Bradley, you're writing, um, which will be looking 
at the impact of the sugar levy on drinks companies, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, exactly. You're looking at that, uh, the yeah, the potential impact on the companies, as you say, um, analysing the, the brands a bit of uh, the, the main sort of beverage companies and also looking at some alternative ways to play the beverage sector if this uh, sugar tax scares you off. Very good. Well, you can look forward to that. Well, there's plenty more in the magazine, Diary of a Private Investor, the best funds for EuroQE and much more. £4.70 in all good news agents. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.